Good morning, Rock Hills. Today, we are continuing our series on soul activity, talking about how we are to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And today, we're talking about loving God with your mind. And so when I was thinking about who in our society represents people that use their minds every day, I, of course, thought of Big Bang Theory, which at least up until a few years ago was the most popular comedy on TV. It's a story of, well, it's a story of of, uh, microphone problems, but it's a story of four physicists in California who live together, they love physics, they're not so good at social interaction, and it's uh, the comedy about that. And so that's what we think of. So um, it's about these four guys, and they are not, they're really great physicists, but it's interesting to me how that show presents people of faith. So the guy Sheldon in that show who was showing you the rules of rock, paper, scissors, lizard, Spock, His mom is a Christian, and she is presented as a nice person, but a real simpleton, someone who does not use her brain a lot, and they probably make quite a few disparaging uh, comments about faith. So that's my question. Can you have faith in God and still use your mind? Love him, love God with your mind. I think some people think that if you go to church, what that means is that you come on Sunday morning, you meet your friends, and you check your brain at the door. But I don't think that's true. I think the Bible, actually, the God of the Bible, calls us to know truth. Truth is important, and the way we understand truth is with our mind. He calls us to know truth, and he values wisdom. A verse that is uh, quoted quite often, or I've seen quoted quite often, is, Uh, Jesus says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other places, he calls the Holy Spirit of God the spirit of truth. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Faith in God actually, to me, requires us to use our minds not to shut it off. Now, this morning, we are going to be talking about searching for the truth, searching for the truth. And this is kind of an idea that people don't always like in our society because for something to be true, it means that something else might be false. And we would have to tell somebody that maybe what you believe, you know, maybe it's false. And we don't like the idea of searching for truth. And, you know, I am a person that has always been wired to want to find the truth, wired to want to find the truth. The truth. I remember being a teenager, I would say, even as a teenager, I would rather somebody tell me that they hate me than to pretend to like me. Because what I wanted to know was the truth. Now, I'm wired in other ways. I am wired a little bit like those guys in uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, the friend of mine, Greg, who wanted me to watch the show, kept asking and asking. And after I finally watched it, I said, you know, I see a little bit of me in that guy, Sheldon, the one that was explaining those rules. And my friend said, a little? (laughs) Yay. Yeah, that's me. But just in case you need proof that uh, they are wired the way I am wired, those instructions were scissors cut paper, paper covers rock, rock crushes lizard, lizard poisons Spock, Spock smashes scissors, scissors decapitate lizard, lizard eats paper, paper disproves Spock, Spock vaporizes rock, and as it always has, rock crushes scissors. (laughs) Bazinga. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very much like that. But the other thing about me is that I really am a person that seeks truth. In fact, the reason that I'm here at Rock Hills 
Um, besides the fact that I do love the fellowship, the gathering of other people, the people that I'm doing life with, I would not have come here if it wasn't for the fact that I believe that they teach what is the truth, the undeniable truth about God. Now, not everybody is wired this way. I think a lot of people participate in uh, religious activities for different reasons. Recently uh, read a book by a guy called David Gregory. He was a television journalist. He covered the Bush White House, and he was the host of Meet the Press for a while. This book is called How's Your Faith? And it's about David Gregory Uh, wanting to rekindle the faith of his youth. He grew up with divorced parents. Dad was Jewish. Mom was Catholic. And he kind of uh, left it alone for a while. But then when he got married, he wanted to have a faith again. But the thing that's so interesting, besides him being a really interesting person, is that he keeps talking about my faith, my faith. But he never says, faith in what? He says, I like it because I like it that my kids eat together with me on the Sabbath. I like it because I love the community that I'm in. And to talk about the importance of faith, he quotes a lot of people and gives them all equal relevance from Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, and that's fine. And I think there are lessons. I personally think all truth is God's truth. But there are lessons to learn, and there are good things about eating together with your family. But for me, this is not how I'm wired. He says that he and his wife, his wife is Methodist, and he says, what's good about us is we can come up with something that works for us. And I think that's great, but that doesn't make it truth, right? For me, I'm a person that really wants to know the truth. And I think that what you believe in, believing in God, the God of the Bible, is critical. said, you know, You can have faith in something, in very sincere faith. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. Yeah? If you believe you've got a headache and you take a pill and it's you believe with all your might that it's ibuprofen, but it's arsenic, you are equally dead. It doesn't matter how much you believe that that pill was ibuprofen. Another example I'd like to give that I think is a fantastic example. And by the way, every time I say, I read a book, I read a book, I feel really snobby, Okay? I read this book. Um, The reason is, those of you may not know, I go to Austin three times a week. And so I am listening to books on audio a lot, a lot. So that's why I'm quoting books. But this has been one of my favorite that I've listened to in the last year. It's a great example. Uh, It's this book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. So this is the story of Nabil Qureshi. He grew up, he was born in the U.S., but he grew up in a Muslim family and was very devout, very devoted, wanted to spend his life serving Allah. Yep, that was his goal for life. And his other goal was to prove Christians wrong. Yep, because in addition to being a very fervent believer, he also was a person who liked to debate. And in this book, it's his journey where he goes to college, he ends up joining the debate club, and becomes best friends with this guy, David Wood, who is equally passionate about debating, but he's also a Christian. And they agree to explore together their faiths and see which one has the greater evidence and challenge each other when people use arguments that don't make sense and you wouldn't normally accept. And this is his journey to Christ because despite every ounce of his being not wanting to believe it, In his mind, he learned and knew that the evidence for the resurrected Jesus was strong and basically incontrovertible as we understand historical proof. 
And this conversion actually cost him something too. His love of God with his mind cost him some relationships with his family who were crushed that their son would leave the faith of their youth. What I'm saying is that it's important what you believe in. The thing that you have faith in is important. It was important to be able to encourage you to read that book. It's a fantastic book. It's important being and part of loving God with your minds with your mind is knowing that what you put your faith in in Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, is true. And knowing that and believing it with your mind. So some of you are here, maybe you're new, maybe you're not, and saying, yeah, all right. But isn't this, don't you guys believe in like miracles or something? Don't you believe that miracles happen? Yep, we do. In fact, don't you believe in a lot of stuff that isn't very scientific? Hasn't science essentially buried God at this point? So it may not be a surprise to you that I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, I don't think science has buried God. But I'd like to talk about it because things that people say and in our common society, they may prevent people from even trying church. And so I want to talk just a little bit about some of the objections people raise on scientific grounds about why they might not be able to believe in church. And I thought of three, and as I practiced this, I realized I only had time to talk about two, (laughs) or else we would be here very long. This is the hard part when you really like a topic to not go for six and a half hours, right? So I promise you I'm going to get you out in time, uh, get you out in time. But I want to talk about two of them. One of them is the idea of that God created the world. I think a lot of people have trouble. They really have trouble with this idea of Genesis, that God created the world. And they also have trouble with the idea that we believe in miracles. Now, the third topic that I was going to talk about was evolution, but I actually talked about that a little bit, and you can find it on the website under messages. It's called um, Science and the Bible. So if you're interested in evolution as an issue for you, you might listen to that talk. But I want to talk about two things that I think people use, and I think in some ways you can use it a little bit as an excuse to not even try or learn. But I want to talk about two things. One is the creation by God, of the world and the universe, and the other is the idea of believing in miracles. Because again, I think we have a faith that we can use our mind and that God calls us to use our minds. So when we talk about creation of the world, some people have an issue with, take issue with this idea that God created, because I think some of the prevailing idea is that the universe kind of happened at random after the Big Bang. I'm going to talk about this at random bit, but the first thing I'd like to say is that um, there are some people that take issue with the description in Genesis of the creation of the world. It talks about six different days on which God did things. I'm not a huge expert in Hebrew, this or that, but I have, once again, read a book, um, but I have read a book about it that was really interesting. This has never been a particular hang-up of mine. This idea of the six days has never been a hang-up of mine. But if it is, I recommend to you this book called Seven Days That Divide the World by John Lennox. Seven Days That Divide the World. But what we understand from that is the word day, um, apparently in Hebrew, in Hebrew, the word day has several meanings just like it does in English. Day in English can mean um, a 24-hour day. It can also mean daytime as opposed to nighttime, right? That happened during the day. 
And it can also mean a period of time, such as in back in my day, which for most people in the room, my day happened before you were born. <laughs> but back in my day, this happened. Same way in Hebrew. So the thing is that the way you read the Hebrew from my understanding from this book, is that it doesn't have to be six 24-hour days that happen right in a row. I'm not an expert on it, but I encourage you to read it if, you have, if that's something that gets to you. But the thing that's more impressive to me as a person that studies and does science is this idea that people have that we are here at random. I'm a statistician, and like the whole thing we do is calculate the chance that something happened at random. And I think what you find is the chance that we are here at random seems so staggeringly improbable that it's just not really worth believing. It really seems, when we look at the science, that we on the earth are created specifically, and it makes you wonder why. Why would we be created? First of all, about 50 years ago when Carl Sagan was really popular, they thought that one out of a thousand planets could support life because they thought that all you needed was a certain kind of star like the sun and the planet to be a certain distance away. But as science has progressed, they've learned more and more that the odds against life on any planet are staggering. So I'm going to say some of the things. One of the things is the size of the planet. The size of our Earth is such that if it were just a little bit bigger, methane and ammonia, instead of going up into the air, would hang around down on Earth because of the gravity of the Earth if it was a little bit bigger. We can't breathe ammonia. We can't breathe methane, right? It would make life on Earth impossible if Earth was just a little bit bigger. If it was just a little bit smaller, water vapor wouldn't hang around. It would go up. So we wouldn't have water <laughs> that we could use, making life um, improbable. The rotation speed of our earth is finely tuned to allow life. If it were slower, the days would be longer, the nights would be longer, and the temperature shifts would be so extreme that you couldn't support life. If it were faster, it's very likely that the winds would be so high that it couldn't support life. The rotation of the earth is just what it needs to be for life to exist. We need a moon as big as our moon. Our moon is actually the biggest moon relative to the size of the planet in the solar system. We need the moon for tides and to maintain our tilt as we go through space. And finally, and this is something I learned that I was just shocked by. You know what helps us have life on Earth? Jupiter. Jupiter. Because Jupiter is so big, you could fit almost 2,000 Earths in it. The gravity from Jupiter attracts the comets And we don't have comet strikes on Earth because Jupiter is pulling them away from the Earth. Yep. It's amazing to me. Like, it's, when you read, this is like, I'm just giving you, like, the really good stuff from the book. It's like, to me, it almost sends a shudder because it's like, wow, it's really, really unlikely that we're here. In fact, the universe itself that it has matter and the atoms that we have is unlikely. After the Big Bang, within one millionth of a second, the forces of the universe, gravity, the amount of force between the protons and neutrons of a nucleus, the amount of force between the nucleus and the uh, electrons of an atom, that was all set and has been constant ever since the inception of the universe. That's what science tells us. If that force that holds the protons and neutrons together were 2% weaker, were 2% weaker, 
the only thing that would exist is hydrogen. That's it. Only thing that would exist is hydrogen. If it was 0.3% stronger, the only thing that would exist are the heavier metals, the heavier elements, no hydrogen, and you need hydrogen for life. If that force was even a tiny bit different, there would be no universe like this. There would be no life. There are other things that just talk about this. As science understands what is necessary for life, the idea that that happened at random just seems so unlikely that you have to conclude that's not a reasonable assumption. The physicist Fred Hoyle, who's an atheist who coined the term Big Bang, has said, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as the chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces, so random forces, worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from these facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Do you have to check your brain at the door because you believe that God created the earth? No. You, you don't. Now, not every scientist who studies these facts um, believes that, uh, not every scientist believes that it points to the God of the Bible. But what I'm saying is there seems to be increasing evidence, increasing evidence that it is not at random and we seem to be here for a purpose. And for me, the question that that would bring up is, why? Why am I here then? If somebody has created this, what is the purpose in creating me and having me here? Now, another thing that I think people have trouble believing in is miracles. And I, I, I can't prove to you every miracle scientifically because miracles, by their nature, are not something you can repeat, right? If you could repeat them, they would be nature. They wouldn't be miracles. You can only prove them historically. But do I need to have this closer to my mouth? Would that be better? <laughs> um, but what I want to say to you today is the idea that people say there cannot be miracles. It's an assumption, right? It's not proven. It's not data. It's just an assumption. They start with the idea that there cannot be a miracle because I say so, and let's go and explain it. Uh, with, let's go and try to explain things without miracles. The best example I have from um, uh, interpreting data through assumptions, I think, comes from my time back when I was in high school, 1986, working at a restaurant called Andrews, wearing my gray cords and square knit tie boat shoes. Um, it's pretty awesome back in 1986. Um, uh, on Mother's Day, on Mother's Day, I was hosting, working up at the front. I was a host. And I have to say, there was a waitress who worked there that mentally I gave the nickname Grumpy. Now, this was not because she was grumpy, which she was, but it was because every set of customers that ever came out of her station was grumpy. You'd see people scowling as they left, like, who was their waitress? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, every single time. But on Mother's Day in 1986, this party of four came in, and as they were leaving, the father in the party of four said to me, because I, I was at the front, I just want you to know I'll never be back. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, what happened? He said, your waitress, your waitress, besides giving terrible service, 
forced a 20% tip on my bill. Now, folks, this was 1986 where 20% was outrageous, right? People gave maybe, maybe 15, maybe a little bit less, but forcing 20% was outrageous. But not only that, our restaurant had a policy that no matter how many people sat at a table, we would never force a tip. Tip was only for good service and it was always voluntary. And so I told the guy this, let me get my manager. It's, it's, you know, this is not our policy. He said, no, no, I'm leaving. So I went to the general manager to talk to him and tell him, hey, a customer has reported that this happened. And what he said to me was, that did not happen because we have a policy that we don't do that. So his interpretation of data was based on assumption, Right? It did not happen because I just say that it didn't because we have a policy. And I think that that's how it is also with miracles. If you say there cannot be miracles, there is not anything outside of nature. That's a worldview. That is not not, uh, science, really. That's not science because it's an assumption. Now, I'm not going to spend time talking about every miracle that's, that's mentioned in the Bible. I want to talk about the big one, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Because I think once you get to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, you can accept turning water into wine, right? It's a little bit easier to accept. There is no doubt historically from historical proof that Jesus Christ lived in the time when they said he lived and was executed by crucifixion. There is no scholar that disagrees on that. The question is, what happened to the body? Because the body was gone. So there are kind of three people that could have done this. The Romans, the Jews, or the disciples, really. Now, the Romans wouldn't have done it because it would look like their guard didn't work and it would have decreased their authority. Very unreasonable to think the Romans would have done that. The Jews, there's no way. They didn't want his story. They wanted him to be dead and buried and taken care of and ended because he was getting followers away from them. And the last group of people that could have done something maybe were the disciples. But if the disciples knew he was dead, why on earth would they spend lives witnessing for him and being all executed and tortured for their faith? 12 people agree to a lie that causes them to be executed? That just doesn't seem rational. The rational explanation is that the witnesses, the eyewitnesses were correct and that they changed their lives because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. If you use logic, if you use your mind, I think you will come to this conclusion. Nabil Kreshi came to this conclusion. A guy, Josh McDowell, came to this conclusion. Lee Strobel came to this conclusion. Many people who set out from the evidence to disprove Christianity and the claims of Jesus have ended up converting because the evidence is so strong for it. What I want you to remember this morning is that if you're a person that says that miracle cannot happen, that the only thing that exists is nature, then that's an assumption that you're making. It's not something that's been proven by science because it can't be. My point this morning is that science has not buried God. And in fact, we can love God with our whole minds. So contrary to popular rumor, science has not buried God. 
So my question for you this morning, there are probably some of you here who already believe in God and believe with your mind. But if God has created us with a purpose, what do we do with that information? You've got this entire universe. You've got a planet that I'm saying, boy, it looks like it was created for us to be here. Why was it created? What do I do with that information? Truth is hard. Truth was hard for Nabil Qureshi. It cost him some relationships. Truth is hard even for something as ordinary as, you know, basketball. You may have heard of a player called Rick Barry from years ago who had an 89.3% free throw average. Anyone out there know why he had that average so high? Underhand. He shot, granny shot, underhand. And you can prove that this is by far the best method. Why do players not do it today? It's embarrassing. No, I mean, not kidding. It's embarrassing. That's why they don't do it. Wilt Chamberlain in the 1961-62 season, he toyed around with it. He achieved his highest free throw average ever, 61%. But who wants to shoot a granny shot, right? They knew the truth, but they didn't want to act on it. When we realize the truth of the gospel, and we realize that scripture is, uh, we realize that the Bible then is our way to touch the divine. It is God reaching out to us. If we believe in our minds in the God of the Bible, then the Bible is our chance to have communion with the divine. And when you use your mind and start thinking about that, that means the things you hear from the Bible, they're not quaint little sayings, right? What's the quaint little saying that we quote at every wedding, right? Every time we go to a wedding, what do we hear? 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4, love is patient, love is kind. Is anyone paying attention? I don't think so, (laughs) right? Everyone who's prepped the wedding is worried about every detail of the reception that's coming. Everyone who's in the wedding is, oh, the lovely couple, they're patient, they're kind. That's until tomorrow. Because <laughs> everybody's happy today. But when you realize, because you have convinced yourself, this is God's word. And God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us because he wants us to be with him These words take on a different meaning, and they call us to action. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. That doesn't say love has a record that they just don't look at very often. That says love keeps no record of wrongs. That is, that's hard. How many of you have your, you know, no, not a show of hands. People that have done you wrong, (laughs) yeah. Thanks, Miguel. (laughs) How many of you have people who have done you wrong and you know you've recounted to people the litany of wrong that's been done to you by that person and you've maybe recounted that litany more than once, maybe more than five times (laughs) to other people? That would be a record of wrongs, wouldn't it? That would be. But God who created this universe says, Love, if you're loving, you don't keep a record of wrongs. When you love God with your mind, it means I need to find out what he tells me to do. 
The Bible is God's way to interact with us. It tells us our purpose. It tells us why we're here. And it tells us about very practical things that the God who set the earth to the right size so that methane goes up and water comes down has told us how we can interact with things like sex and money and living with others and interacting with authority. Loves us enough to make the earth the right size, but we kind of, we're like the person sometimes, or I am. I'm not going to say we, I'm going to say I. I am like the person who knows that granny shot is the best, but I'm going to keep going with the low percentage way because I don't want to be embarrassed. Loving God with your mind means doing what he says God says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Simple. If you love me, you keep my commandments. But the first step in this relationship with God, if you have never done this before, is admitting that you have done things that are not right, that are contrary to God's will. And you understand that the punishment for that is separation from God. But God provided a way. He provided his son Jesus to make the sacrifice for you, to take the punishment in your stead. And all that's required is belief. All that's required is belief in Jesus' atoning sacrifice. If you have never taken that step of faith, I encourage you, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to Pastor Adam. We're happy to talk with you about taking that step of faith. Just want to encourage you this morning that we can love God with our minds. And it's not to prove people right or wrong, but what I want to emphasize is is that faith, our faith is not one, faith in Jesus is not one where you are told, check your brain at the door. You're told to use your mind. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? Easy to do, easy to become a symbol. But I'd like you to remember that this is celebrating the time when a real person, the Son of God, was alone and told, or was with his disciples, no one else, with his best friends on earth, one of whom was about to betray him unto death, and said, this is my body, which is broken, or which is about to be broken for you. This is my blood, which I willingly spill for you. It's a very serious time of remembrance that we can do when we worship God, heart, soul, strength, and even with our mind. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that you know us as people, and you know we have hearts, souls, minds, and our strength we thank you that we can, you are a God that we can worship in truth and that you are the God of truth. Help us this week to remember this and to act on that truth we've discovered. In Jesus' name, amen.